0: get to build on that from here. So will you do me a favor and stand as we read the word of God together? You can follow along in your Bibles. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 12. It'll be on the screen as well, or you can just listen however you prefer. But I want to read this section to start our time together. It says, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. He he answered, Haven't you read what David did when his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law... That, the Sabbath, the priests, that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple desecrate the day and yet are innocent. I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Going on from that place, he went into the synagogue. A man... A man with a shriveled hand was there looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. They asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and it was completely restored just as sound as. sound. As the other, but the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. You. Good job, everybody. You can have a seat. Hey, in case you haven't been here for a couple of weeks or you're new, one of our new rhythms is going to be reading the word of God together, standing, honoring it. And so when I say, This is the word of the Lord at the completion of the reading, your response will be, Thanks be to God. Okay, so we're going to learn that together over the next couple weeks. I'm very proud of you and thankful for that. So we've been going through Matthew, and the the study of Matthew began two weeks ago. And this has been uh, something I have been looking forward to, something that our team has been looking forward to for uh, a few months now, to go through the book of Matthew and learn How Jesus lived, how he taught, what he taught his disciples to do. And so that's the lens through which we're going to be studying the Gospel of Matthew. The interactions that Jesus has with his disciples, that he has with um, people outside of the church, people inside of the church at that point in time called the synagogue, and all of the things that he taught his disciples to do. And so we began a couple weeks ago at the very end of the Gospel of Matthew, In Matthew chapter 28, Jesus calls us to study, to know what he commanded, and that we may obey it. And so I'm going to read this to you. This is what the church calls the Great Commission. It's Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. It says this, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Okay, so we have that command. We have the Great Commission. Go and teach the disciples what I have taught you. But this was not the first time that Jesus had invited his disciples into following and adopting a new way of life. In fact, Jesus was constantly inviting people that were both religious and non-religious, who were at the center of culture and who were on the fringe of culture. He was constantly inviting them into this way of life that is based on the kingdom of God principles. And so Jessica, Pastor Jessica, already read this. Um, We find an example of this in Matthew 7. I'm going to read it to you again. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. So what we see here is we have, from one perspective, what I would consider a warning. Hey, be careful how you build your house, because it will directly impact how you weather the storms of life. Be careful how you build your life, because it will directly impact how you Handle and survive the storms of life. But more importantly, what we see here is we actually have an invitation. And this invitation is Jesus extending an invite into a way of life that leads to human flourishing, flourishing now, not just life after death, life in heaven. But while we are here, we learn to flourish. And because we live in a culture that's built around transaction, we need to be careful not to apply that same reasoning into, like into this teaching. Jesus is not saying, hey, do these things so that you will be saved. That's not the point at all. This is actually the opposite of good theology, right? We are saved by faith in Jesus alone through the grace and mercy extended to us by Jesus. And we have passages like... Ephesians 2 um, that help us understand that we are powerless to create our own salvation so I'm going to read this to you Ephesians 2 8 and 9 says this for it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not from yourselves it is a gift of God not by works so that no one can boast so this passage, this passage that Matthew, that's in Matthew 7, these words of Jesus giving us the instruction, be careful how you build your life, it is a warning. But it's also an invitation into what Jesus described as a full life. A full life. A full, rich life. But here's the kicker. Jesus' path to the full life is full of practices and habits and rhythms that are counter to popular culture. They're counter to popular culture. Jesus' way of life is what we call counter-formational, meaning it is meant to form us in a way that is counter to or opposite of what popular opinion would say is a life of flourishing. And this way of life is not only counterformational in our day, it was counterformational in Jesus' day. Here are a few examples of Jesus' counterformational way of life, way, the way his teachings impacted his culture and impact our culture. First of all, societal value for women and children. That's a way of Jesus, human value for the poor and the outcast social inclusion for the foreigner, cultural value around the household family unit, and distinctly important roles for every person in that household. The list goes on, but those are a few that are unique to the way that Jesus taught and the way that God designed for life. So popular culture wants to form you in a way that is different than the way that Jesus taught. Popular culture wants to form you in a way that creates what I like to think of or what I don't like to think of but what I consider a cycle of dependence on something other than Jesus. It's that never ending pursuit of enough. And it's exhausting. Do we have enough resources, money, power, fame? Do we have enough comfort or certainty or stability? And really, these things are like a candy shell around a hollow emptiness. But popular culture is discipling us to believe that just a little bit more will finally be that thing that gives you what we are talking about as enough. And that way of life, like Jesus said later on in that passage in Matthew 7, that is a life built on sand. And when the storms come and your life is built on those precepts, you are going to crumble. Yes. And in contrast, Jesus says, says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, I am enough. Jesus is enough. His love, his saving grace, his way of life is enough. And so here's our reality, and I've said this the last two weeks, the only pathway to true human flourishing is to know and obey the teachings of Jesus. The only pathway to true human flourishing is to know and obey the teachings of Jesus. And this is the invitation that Jesus offers. He says, obey my commands, and your life will be like a house built on the rock. And so it's through this lens that we are going to study the Gospel of Matthew. And last week, we walked through the story of Jesus being led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And I'm not going to re-preach that sermon. You can check it out online if you want. But the big idea is important. I know some of you are like, thank goodness he's not going to re-preach the sermon. But the big idea is important for us to understand. Jesus modeled in this particular instance from last week that fasting, which is a spiritual discipline was a big part of his preparation for the big moments. For the big moments of his ministry, Jesus practiced. He didn't just show up to the game thinking that he was going to dominate, even though, as Jesus, he could, but the rest of us will not. And so he was like a good coach modeling for us that practice is a big deal. Now, we did not dedicate a lot of the time on the sermon to fasting. We'll cover that in future sermons, but we will, um, I want to remind us of what we focused on last week because it will help us understand where we're going this week. Jesus had rhythms. Jesus had disciplines, which he practiced often in order to be spiritually prepared for, as he said in Matthew 7, the winds and the storms of life. I mentioned this quote from Dallas Willard. Dallas Willard is a popular theologian and author. He was a professor in Southern California. He said this in his book on spiritual disciplines. He said, it'll be on the screen. The star performer himself didn't achieve his excellence by trying to behave a certain way only in the game. Instead, he chose an overall life of preparation of mind and body, pouring all his energies into that total preparation to provide a foundation in the body's automatic responses and strength for his consciousness during the game. And then he continues a few paragraphs later. He says, A baseball player who expects to excel in the game without adequate exercise of his body is no more ridiculous than a Christian who hopes to be able to act in the manner of Christ when put to the test without the appropriate exercise in godly living. So here's the point of revisiting last week. Your spiritual preparedness is developed through consistent practicing of Jesus' way of life. Your spiritual preparedness is built on practicing the way of life that Jesus has invited us into. And so my prayer is that we might be a church who are spiritually prepared for the big moments. Because I believe that we're going to have a lot of them both as individuals and as collective, both in hard ways and in really good ways, we're gonna have big moments. May we be a church that's spiritually prepared. May we be a church that leans into the way of Jesus so that we can receive what he called a full life, and may we be a church that hears the words of Jesus and puts them into practice. And so it's with that in mind that we turn to our passage for today, the one that we read at the beginning, and we talk about the practice of Sabbath. Now, I want to revisit that first part of that passage just so it's fresh in your brain as we begin to dive in. So I'm going to read to you again Matthew 12, but I'm only going to go one through seven this time. So this time, just listen. If you want to read along in your Bible, that's great, but you can just listen. It says, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. Was walking through the grain fields. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. He answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on the Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent for the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. So we come to this moment where Jesus is again, he's having a discussion with the Pharisees, with the religious people, about what is indeed lawful and not lawful for practicing Jews to do on the Sabbath. And as you saw in the video, part of the reason I showed it is because the Sabbath is a very big deal, right? It's like college football in the South, right? It's a religion. It's a thing that everybody does. They shut down the businesses for that. In fact, it is so foundational that it's actually one of the Ten Commandments. Deuteronomy 5, verse 12, it says, Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. The Sabbath is a command. And so at this point in history, (laughs) basketballs, all right, I can dig it, I can dig it. Our builders, they had to make a presence, you know, first Sunday in, and here we are already causing destruction. Thank you, Jesus. So it's at this point in history where this interaction takes place on the Sabbath, and it's a weekly rhythm that these Pharisees have been practicing and that their people and that their lineage have been practicing for thousands of years. It's been strictly observed for thousands of years. And so here comes Jesus, who they viewed as a rabbi, right? A rabbi means a teacher. He was a teacher of the Jewish law, of the Jewish custom. And his disciples, the people who are following him, who are following his teachings and his ways, they appear to be breaking the Sabbath rule. And they were doing it because they were hungry. Okay, so you felt hungry at some point in your life, certainly, right? What do you do when you're hungry? Yeah, you eat. You grab a snack. You have a meal, whatever that looks like. But not in this scenario. The act of cultivating some heads of grain to snack on was against the rules. So now we have the disciples following Jesus and they are stuck between the rules and the laws and their basic desire for food. Have you ever been there before? Have you ever been in a similar situation? I have, and I wanna tell you about it. Okay, so I grew up, yeah, you signed up for this, okay? I grew up a rule follower, and for many reasons in my mind, it was best to simply abide by the rules and the social structures put around me. But God, in all of his good and gracious wisdom, saw fit to give me a wife who does not feel the same way. Okay? (laughs) She does not have the same desires. So one day, we're at Starbucks grabbing a coffee, and we each needed to use the restroom. And so at this point, this is gonna kind of age the story, the restrooms at Starbucks were single occupant, and they were labeled men's restroom, women's restroom, right? And so in traditional restroom economics, which is a thing, okay, the women's was occupied with a small line and the men's was readily available, okay? Traditional restroom economics here. So I enter, I take care of business and I return to the lobby to find my wife still waiting at the front of the line. Of course, I smile at her, Uh, I tell her I love her, I let her know that I'm going to go grab our drinks and that I will meet her at the table uh, when she is finished. And as I'm approaching the bar to grab our coffees, I see out of the corner of my eye, my wife disappear into the men's restroom. I looked around in shock. And I half expected that the bathroom police would pop up maybe out of the ceiling like special forces to take her down. That's kind of what I was thinking. I couldn't believe what my wife had just done. And I instantly began to calculate how I was going to approach this conversation around her pure potty anarchy. She returned to find me in shock and I asked her this very astute and formulated question. What was that? What was that? And she explained to me that it was either use the men's restroom or pee her pants. And I said, I'm not sure what's worse, okay? I'm not sure. Clearly I was the one that needed to chill out. But I felt justified as a rule follower in my righteousness. And I think about how the Pharisees felt in their righteousness, seeing Jesus and his companions simply meeting a need, hunger, but in a manner that was outside the bounds of what they were allowed to do. And so they understandably bugged out. It was against their understanding of acceptable behavior. And so Jesus sees this and he offers them a gentle correction. This is a very gentle correction. He tells them a story about David, who is a patriarch in their faith. He tells them a story about his men and him entering the temple to eat the consecrated bread which is bread that was baked as an offering. And then once the offering was done for the day, the priests would eat it, but no one else was allowed to eat it. And he gives them another example of laws where they are being crossed simply because of the rules designed to worship God. The example of the consecrated bread or the example of the priest working on the Sabbath to offer the, sacrifice, the sacrificial behavior. And so this bread was only meant for the priest, and you can check that out in 1 Samuel 21. But in David's case, they were tired. They were hungry their, from their mission, and they needed food. And so Jesus gives them that example, and then he hits them with a very striking remark, verse 7 and 8 of That passage in Matthew 12, it said this. It said, if you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, mercy, in case you're um, wondering exactly what that is, it's this generous response from God of withholding the penalty that we deserve for our sinful behavior. And in Old Testament law, the act of bringing a sacrifice was actually how a person would atone for their sins or make their sins right. And so what Jesus is saying here when he says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, he's saying it's not the act of the sacrifice that I'm after, but the fruit of the sacrifice, the gift of mercy. I want you to sacrifice, but not for the sacrifice itself because it brings mercy to the person. And so Jesus makes this comparison to help his audience understand that observing the Sabbath is similar in nature. Commanding the Sabbath is God's merciful directive to slow us down so that we can avoid running ourselves into the ground. But that reality had been lost in translation. The religious leaders became um, obsessed with religion, and they came to see that the Sabbath and the rest of the laws were meant to serve their own good, that the law was meant to serve the law. But Jesus is saying the law of God is meant to serve His will, and it's for our benefit. It's for our benefit. So when the Pharisees object to the disciples cultivating food because they were hungry, Jesus tells them, no, 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 you have it all wrong. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And so this is an invitation into the Sabbath. Our invitation into the Sabbath is an invitation into the way that Jesus lived. It's an invitation to take seriously a command, the command of the Sabbath, but the command of the Sabbath is designed to bring us mercy. And so here's our counter formation point for the day. In a world that worships the religion of hustle, Jesus commands Sabbath for rest. In a world that worships the religion of hustle, and don't get me wrong, I like to work, I like to do the things, I like to be busy and full, but in a a world that worships the religion of hustle, Jesus commands Sabbath for mercy. And so, and in this case, Sabbath, as with all other religious activity, we must be careful to remember its purpose. Or as I like to say, keep the main thing, the main thing. So Sabbath, along with all the commands that Jesus gave us, are designed for our flourishing. Right? The Pharisees got a little lost. They said the law is designed for the law. And Jesus says, no, 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 you're missing the point. This is meant for my people. And so the primary purpose of these commands is to know Jesus more and be more like him. The Sabbath, the reason why it's merciful is it gives us an opportunity to stop the things of our lives, the things that are good, the things that are hard, the things that are demanded of us, and the things that we like to do and focus on Jesus and focus on being more like him. Every other benefit served the purpose of this main thing. Every benefit of Sabbath is meant to point us toward this main thing, and we must keep that in view so that we avoid becoming modern-day Pharisees. Okay, Pastor Rick, so you've convinced me. But what does this Sabbath thing look like? And that's a great question. I know you guys always come with great questions. You're amazing. So I thought about it. I thought, you're going to ask this great question. And the truth is that it can look like a lot of specific things in your life, but I want to give us a big idea framework that can help us begin learning to practice the gift of Sabbath. And so here's what um, the basic framework looks like. The framework that we're going to be practicing in our community groups, if you haven't already signed up, I'd highly encourage you to do that. We're going to be practicing this basic framework, and it's been developed by an organization called Practicing the Way, and they're dedicating their energy to helping people know and practice the way of Jesus. And so we took that material, and we're making it our own. But this basic framework comes in four particular ways. The first one is to stop. So the first part of observing Sabbath is to stop. The practice of Sabbath is A designated time in your week where you intentionally stop the normal rhythms of your life and use that time to rest and to delight and to worship so I don't want you to think of this as another thing to add to your schedule that's actually the opposite effect I'm not saying hey you're really busy let's do another thing (laughs) I promise you my wife would have none of that so it's actually a call to remove a period of busyness and hurry from your life so that you can focus on Jesus. So you can become more like Jesus. Now, you might be thinking, but I have so much to do. I just don't think I can possibly give 24 hours to rest and delight and worship. And I hear you. But I will say, that's exactly why you need the Sabbath, okay? So maybe it's not a full 24-hour period to start maybe a 12 hour or six hour period, but regardless of the length, I would love for you to start the rhythm and build towards that 24 hours. And whatever you decide to commit to, begin and end with an activity that can signify the start and finish of your Sabbath practice. Mark it, mark it with a beginning and an end. Use a prayer, a meal, a relaxing bath, simply lighting a candle just pick something to signal that you are stopping from the regular rhythms so once you stop you need to rest you need to rest the next step is rest and you can practice and work rest into your life however it makes sense for you again not a prescription here the practicing the way guide if you get in touch with that recommends that people who primarily use their body at work, meaning manual labor, that they actually find a way to rest their body and use their mind, but vice versa is true too. If you spend most of your day behind a desk thinking and processing and delivering on things that are digital or financial or whatever it may be, that you stop the thinking and you just use your body. Find a way to rest your mind, but use your body. The nice walk with someone that you love. Something that gets you to stop what you're thinking about all of the things that you have to deal with and actually enter into a period of rest for your mind, for your body. So you have to be intentional. You have to stop and you have to design these restful experiences or your day will fill up. Your period of Sabbath will fill up. So stop, rest. The third one is delight. Yes, you heard it right. Your Sabbath practice should involve delight. God gave us the ability to delight. He wants us to delight and we are, meant, we are meant to engage it. And so one of my favorite activities to do on my Sabbath is I like to go fishing. I just like being around the water. I like being in nature. I, I usually do it with a friend or my dad or another family member. And so I catch these beautiful parts of God's created order and I'm in a beautiful setting that he created, and it brings me true delight. But you have to find your own way to delight. You have to find your own way to establish delight, to enjoy your Sabbath. And I know when I find delight, it refreshes my soul. And that refreshing drives me towards the fourth thing, which is worship. Worship defined at its most basic, is attention yes we sing and we call it worship but way underneath that at the foundation of worship it is attention and so the design of this is to give God your attention that whatever you design your Sabbath to look like that it would slowly and steadily turn you towards the God of the universe the God who gave us the gift in the first place. The God who said that your salvation is in me. I've handled that. Now go and flourish. So, worship. So, here's how I'm going to close, and then we're going to do communion together. Sabbath is both a command and a gift given to us by God, modeled by Jesus with the big idea that you become more like Jesus, that you become closer to Jesus. So I really want to encourage you, seriously consider how you can Sabbath. Really take the time to consider it. Really practice and plan a way that you can observe a period of Sabbath, even if it's not 24 hours. because it's essential to the way that you grow in your relationship with God. It's essential in the way that you remain tethered to the life that God designed with you, for you, to be with you. I love this quote. I was revisiting a leadership video from a guy named Simon Sinek. If you don't know who he is, he's an author and a speaker. Not even a Christian, I don't think. I don't know, maybe he is, but he's certainly not vocal about it. But he talked about he says, when it comes to building a relationship, consistency beats intensity every time. Consistency beats intensity every time. So if you're like, well, I've got three months of things to do and then I'll give God a whole week, first of all, you won't. Just going to tell you. Second of all, you're missing out on so many consistent opportunities. Right where you can just be slowly, just small little doses of interaction with God, one period a week, six, 12, 24 hours that you can be giving to God to stop, rest, delight, and worship. Consistency beats intensity every time. And so our goal, the reason that we are practicing Sabbath is because we want to be the church who's prepared for the big moments, whatever that looks like to stand with each other in hard times, to lift each other up when we're down, to celebrate with each other when we win, to move into spaces where God's calling our church and our team just knows that we can't do that if we're not rested and prepared and ready for those things. So my encouragement is to join us in this practice. Okay, will you grab the communion cup with me? We're gonna finish off this time together by breaking bread and drinking the cup. The thing that I love so much about communion, you know, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Jesus was commanding us to remember him through the observation of communion, through this little wafer and this little cup of juice that came from Amazon. Right? So it's not holy itself. What's holy is this remembrance. And God was so good. Jesus was so gracious to us that he gave us a tangible reminder. Not just something that we have to think upon, but something that we can actually feel and taste. So Jesus, who was crucified, who sent the Holy Spirit, who works inside of us, who saved us, didn't just say, hey, do this and exercise in your mind. He actually gave us this tangible gift to observe. So I'm going to pray over it. And As a Christ follower, there's great significance in here. And if you're not a Christ follower, it's just a wafer and juice, and that's okay too. But I'm going to pray, first of all, that if you want to know Jesus, that you would just give your life to him. It says, believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you shall be saved. And then the gift of communion takes on an entirely new significance. So if that's you, I'm going to pray for you. And then I'm going to pray for these elements. And then we're going to take it, and then we're going to sing. And we're going to sing our guts out because we love Jesus. Father God, we come to you. We thank you for this opportunity. We thank you for this moment where you are calling us into, you have invited us into a moment where you are speaking to our lives and we are so thankful, regardless of how we came into this space today, you saw fit to draw us here, to impress upon our lives your word, your spirit, your gifts, your practices, So I pray that if there's somebody here who needs to know you in a personal way, that you would reveal yourself to them, that they would absolutely know you. And God, for this reminder of communion, these tangible gifts of your grace and your mercy in our life, may it be a celebration. May it be a celebration in our hearts and in our minds through the way that we taste it and experience it, God. May that speak to us and bless our souls today. A gift. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So you can take the elements.